0: From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home.
1: I've been shot quite a few times and blown up and stuff, Um, but that doesn't really, it's not what Special Forces is about. You don't join to get shot. I mean, when charging into, into machine gun fire is the best, worst decision you can make of the day. It's a pretty bad day.
0: That's First Sergeant Charles Ritter.
1: I go by Chuck Ritter.
0: He's pretty much exactly what you'd picture when you think of a green beret. He's in his mid-30s. He's tall, muscular, with graying hair.
1: I apologize for sweating because I just worked out and I took pre-workout. Ritter is
0: at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, home of the Special Operations Forces. He's between deployments now. I've
1: I've fought and bled with more foreign nationals than, than I have with Americans on the battlefield. You become friends.
0: He told us about one incident when he and his unit were working with a local Afghan force, training them, sharing a camp, fighting alongside them. And on one cold winter day, some of the Afghans went on a mission to secure an area threatened by enemy combatants.
1: Pretty large unit, probably about, they'd taken about 250 guys out on the ground and gotten pinned down by enemy forces all morning.
0: They had to do something. So Ritter talked it over with a local Afghan commander who said this.
1: What we'd like you to do is to take these 30 Afghans that they left back here because they didn't feel like they were good enough to go on the objective with them. they are like you to load up in Afghan, Russian-made helicopters and land in the middle of the day in the middle of this firefight and kind of help these guys take control to get this mission done. Like, do you think that's feasible?
0: Ritter assessed this situation and he determined his team would have to chop her into a machine gun firefight. There was no other option.
1: So I- Talked to the team leader, we came back, we said, this is absolutely unfeasible, it's ridiculous, but we're going to do it anyway because we're Green Berets. And this is the only way we're going to get a handle on the situation and get this campaign going again. So um, an hour and a half later, we're loading up on, we loaded up on MI-17s, right in the middle of a firefight, right on top of some machine gun positions.
0: Almost immediately, Ritter was hit by a bullet.
1: Right coming off the aircraft, I got shot in the hand, Um, It blew out all the bone here.
0: To be more precise, the bullet landed right between Ritter's fingers. It tore through a knuckle and traveled all the way up his hand and came out of his wrist. His right hand was useless. Bullets were flying, and he couldn't even hold a rifle.
1: Yeah, we basically wrapped it up. I changed where I was in the battlefield and took charge of an element to where I didn't have to need a rifle.
0: So instead of shooting, he moved away and directed the soldiers.
1: We ended up assaulting through some enemy forces, um, linking up with the Afghans, taking control of the situation, getting them getting them organized in about 45 minutes from what they couldn't do all day.
0: Next, Ritter and his unit set on completing the original mission, and that was to push out the enemy combatants. He told this to our producer, Shoshi Shmulevitz.
1: And then we actually assaulted through all the enemy positions in about two hours, and then we're done with the mission. Mission's complete, and then we exfilled out, and they came back, and we continued on with the campaign plan. Moving into enemy machine gun positions, is, is it is a rush, but... I mean, it's just kind of part of the job at that point. The first time you're in a firefight, you're like, okay, that was cool. Um, if I do it again, whatever.
0: <laughs> whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not the driving factor, what drives you in your job, I don't think. We don't crave the combat so much as we crave hard things to conquer and, and just crush it and then move on to the next hard thing and conquer and crush that. Most of us, we don't see the world in problems, we see it in solutions. And that's what kind of makes a good green beret.
0: This is what separates Green Berets from the rest of the military. While most conventional forces operate on clear orders, Green Berets are given lots of freedom to solve complex problems. For Sergeant Ritter, the actual combat is one of the least interesting parts of his job. When you ask him what he's most proud of, he talks about the plan he devised for training local Afghan forces. On today's program, we're devoting the hour to the stories behind Special Operations Forces. We'll explore their history and how their mission has changed since 9-11. We'll find out how they're trained, and we'll hear from Admiral William McRaven, who oversaw the raid that took out Osama bin Laden. And we'll also talk about just what it takes to be successful on a special operations mission and under what circumstances the president should deploy these elite units. First, a primer. Special forces, special operations. Is there a difference?
2: Yes, and there's a lot of confusion about this. Even presidents, in fact, have bungled the difference between the two.
0: That's Mark Moyer. He's the director of the Center for Military and Diplomatic History at the Foreign Policy Initiative. That's a Washington think tank.
2: Special operations forces, or SOF for short, are the forces across all of the armed services. So that's the umbrella term. Special forces are... A subset of that, they belong to the Army. They're also known as the Green Berets.
0: So just to recap, when we say Special Operations Command, we're referring generally to all of these groups, Green Berets, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs. When we talk about Special Forces, we're referring specifically to the Green Berets who are in the Army. Today, we see Special Operations as quick, precise, able-to-do jobs that conventional forces simply cannot do – But back when they first began, during World War II, not everybody thought they were particularly useful or even worth maintaining.
3: President Truman did not like the fact that they had to use ungentlemanly tactics. They had to lie, they had to cheat, they had to go and do sabotage.
0: That's Roxanne Merritt. She's the director of the JFK Special Warfare Museum at Fort Bragg.
3: I'm an Army brat. And I had a history degree.
0: The history of special operations really begins in World War II. A number of unconventional warfare units emerged. One was the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And that was a precursor to both the CIA and the special forces.
3: And at that time, they realized that they were going to need people to go behind enemy lines that you know, they needed a capability to work with partisans, to work with people behind the lines.
0: But after the war ended, Truman felt no obligation to keep these units created under his predecessor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, especially since they were causing a bit of turf war in Washington.
3: The OSS was in competition in some ways with the FBI, and J. Edgar Hoover hated them.
0: So despite an emerging Soviet threat, Truman disbanded the unconventional warfare units.
4: And it wasn't until another war came along in Korea that you start to see those ideas resuscitated.
0: That's Mike Krivto. He's the deputy command historian at Army Special Operations Command.
4: So the idea was, as long as we have nuclear weapons, nobody's ever going to fight another major ground war. Korea, of course, proves that wrong. We do fight ground combat. And because of that, we find ourselves faced again with all the problems that major ground combat entails the requirement for special reconnaissance the requirement to do direct action missions the requirement to work with guerrilla forces all of that happens in korea
5: in korea united nations troops push on and the cautious advance against the communists
4: and in april of 1952 a visionary by the name of major general mcclure puts together a plan to create both special forces and psychological operations units within the Army on a permanent basis.
0: In Korea and later in Laos and Vietnam, the special forces were used to train local anti-communist forces.
4: This idea of working with the local people, so you're living with them, eating, working with them day in, day out, and taking them from a very basic level of training into more advanced combat units that their nation can then use in the field against their enemies.
0: President Kennedy recognized the effectiveness of those tactics and the value of the Special Forces. And in 1961, he visited their home in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he saw a demonstration of the Green Berets. Those of you who serve here, you are maintaining freedom all around the globe. It was during that demonstration that the Special Forces put on their Green Berets and wore them openly. They had adopted the iconic headwear in Europe during World War II.
3: They worked with partisans. And so they understood that when they were dressed as locals in Europe, that the berets is a natural part
0: of the gear. Roxanne Merritt again.
3: They were allowed to wear the berets in Europe with no problem. But in the United States, they were not allowed to wear them. They were considered unmilitary. They were considered unmanly. They were considered un-American.
0: But the Special Forces soldiers loved the Green Beret. It was a symbol of distinction. It set them apart from the conventional army. And for 10 years, they broke the rules and kept wearing them, at least when they were out in the field. Fast forward to 1961, and the Special Forces were still an obscure, poorly understood corner of the military. Lieutenant General William Yarborough, known as the father of the Green Berets, worried they'd be disbanded again, just like they were after World War II. He realized they needed a bit of clever branding. He needed to come up
3: with a mystique.
0: So when President Kennedy visited Fort Bragg, Yarborough had his Special Forces soldiers show off what they could do rope climbing, parachuting, diving. Then they put on their berets and paraded out in front of Kennedy. He was very impressed.
3: From that came presidential authorization for the bureau. So it's the only piece of headgear in Department of Defense that has presidential authorization.
0: That didn't mean things got any easier for the special forces or for any of the other special operations groups. Like today, much of the work the special forces did was clandestine, which means that when things went smoothly, the public never heard about it. But botched missions became front page news. In 1979, when special forces tried to rescue American hostages in Iran, the operation didn't just go badly. It was a spectacular failure.
4: 1979, the American embassy had been seized in Tehran.
0: Deputy command historian Mike Crivdo.
4: And they held 52 Americans hostage for what seemed to be a total of over 400 days. This was a sore spot in American psyche. We're not used to that. So President Carter and his advisors decided they had to do something. And they put together a military force to conduct that rescue.
0: The plan was to send over helicopters for a daring rescue mission.
4: But nothing uh, seemed to be working right.
0: A number of things went wrong, some due to poor coordination, some because of a terrible sandstorm that hit just as their helicopters were leaving.
4: The pilot experienced a whiteout and a ground guide who was moving him forward, did not perceive him moving. As a result, the helicopter collided with a refueler C-130. That fixed-wing aircraft was full of fuel, caught fire, and eventually exploded. The troops got out of the C-130, but the helicopter crew and some ground crewmen were killed. A total of eight Americans were killed. And the next day, you see pictures in the newspaper. I can still remember seeing this of the Ayatollah, the leader of Iran, picking up finger bones from the bodies of those Americans that were left and holding it up for the international TV. This is not what we expected from American military power.
0: Months later, the hostages were finally released. In the meantime, a commission was convened to investigate the failed operation. The problem, it found, was that the various military services involved in the operation failed to work together.
4: Everything that teaches us the good lessons is usually through some failures. We learn very well from failures. From a historical perspective, we often wonder what would happen if it would have succeeded. Somehow we'd be limping along like we were before 1980 if it had succeeded.
0: The failed mission and subsequent investigation led to the formation of U.S. Special Operations Command, or SOCOM, which put all the special operations units under one umbrella.
1: That was one of the toughest things I've ever been involved in because none of the services wanted the command. It was very frustrating because uh, I could just see all the things we could do if we could just get some cooperation.
0: That's General James Lindsay, the first commander of SOCOM.
1: I'm not a natural leader, but when I got into it, I I thought it was pretty neat. I liked doing it, and uh, I just liked the camaraderie.
0: And it was under General Lindsay's leadership that SOCOM had its first major success when the U.S. invaded Panama and toppled the regime of its dictator, Manuel Noriega, in 1989. SOCOM was responsible for rescuing a reported CIA operative from a Panamanian prison.
1: Anyway, it worked out. We got him out. Few people were injured in the process, but the guy didn't kill him. Very successful.
0: But... A few years later, in 1993, a failed mission in Mogadishu revealed the limits of special operations forces. U.S. and U.N. troops were on a humanitarian mission in the midst of the Somali Civil War. A group of Army Rangers and Deltas were tasked with capturing the colonels of warlord Mohamed Adid. The operation was supposed to be completed within an hour, but when two Black Hawk helicopters were shot down, It led to an all night battle and the deaths of 19 Americans. The events were the basis for the movie Black Hawk Down.
2: We lost the tail rotor, it's gone.
0: The Battle of Mogadishu proved special operations alone were not sufficient to fight a successful war.
4: These tragic events raise hard questions about our effort in Somalia. Why are we still there? What are we trying to accomplish? How did a humanitarian mission turn violent?
0: And the failure of that mission was one of the reasons why President Clinton was slow to respond to the Rwandan genocide a year later. He didn't want to risk another Black Hawk down. But then came 9-11 and the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. They demanded unconventional tactics, special operations tactics.
6: U.S. military special operations forces were able to get to Afghanistan very quickly and start the fight against Taliban and al-Qaeda
0: That's Chris Harmer, a retired Navy commander and senior analyst at the Institute for the Study of War.
6: Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS, they're not really a coherent nation-state organization. They're terrorist organizations, and that's what's driving this shift towards uh, much more special operations and much lighter conventional forces footprint.
0: In other words, the war against these non-state actors, al-Qaeda and ISIS, is an unconventional war, and that's exactly what the special forces are built to do. But if that's the case, why are these wars still going on? Later in our program, we'll take a closer look at that question. But up next, the story of how a group of 10 Green Berets was able to tame Afghanistan's valley of death.
7: When you take the Pesh, it was the only known place in Afghanistan where there was an operating al-Qaeda cell. Our job was basically to go there and disrupt all of that.
0: To learn more about special operations, including an interview with a commander of their psychological operations teams, you can head to our website at PRI.org. You're listening to Warrior Diplomats, a look into U.S. special operations on America abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Let's head back to Fort Bragg now and learn a little more about what it takes to become a Green Beret.
8: The truck that just drove by is one of our unarmored utility trucks that's taking students and their supplies out to the training environment. As the sun sets towards the night's missions for a raid or an ambush, that they'll kick off sometime after midnight tonight.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Seth Wheeler is the commander of the 1st Battalion Special Warfare Training Group. He's responsible for turning soldiers into Green Berets. Lieutenant Colonel Wheeler spoke with our producer, Shoshi Shmulevitz, at Camp McCall, North Carolina, the Green Berets training grounds.
8: The real classroom is in the woods, where we have realistic training scenarios set up for our students to apply their skills and then learn from their mission success, but also learn from their mission failures.
0: The Special Forces Qualification course, or Q course, consists of seven phases over the course of about two years. Students are admitted to the course only after going through a selection process to demonstrate intellectual and physical ability.
8: There's one area that I want to show you, which is Nasty Nick Obstacle Course, which is known in the Department of Defense as the toughest obstacle course uh, anywhere. There are about 30 obstacles moving through darkened tunnels through water as well as uh, over 30-foot confidence climbs, ladders that are straight up, rope climbs. It's a lot of fun.
9: What's like the coolest thing you guys do in training? <laughs>
8: <laughs> no, it's a, it is a good question. One of the training uh, requirements that we have our students conduct is tying themselves to a harness and strapping themselves onto a rope to the tune of about eight, eight to 10 soldiers at a time, uh, attached to the bottom of the helicopter, and then being lifted out of a forested area dangling uh, about 100 feet below the helicopter in order to land in a, in a different landing zone. Uh, flying around attached to a rope attached to a helicopter is often probably one of the most exciting uh, experiences that our students have, and not the least of which is, of course, high risk.
0: Physical and tactical training aside, what really distinguishes the Special Forces qualification course from conventional military training is the emphasis on character. Throughout the Q course, trainers observe the soldiers for traits like integrity, perseverance, and adaptability.
8: We see courage as, in many cases, a physical attribute. Uh, Can the soldier crawl through a darkened tunnel? But when also working on a team, when one of the team members also does something that's questionable, does the candidate have the courage to say no or raise his or her voice to say Uh, Maybe we should consider another course of action. Standing up to one's peers is really, in many ways, the ultimate form of courage that we do certainly assess for.
0: That character assessment culminates in a special three-week simulation exercise, which takes place across miles of North Carolina pine forests. The students must use all the skills they've learned in their unconventional warfare, combat, and survival training. It also tests their ability to deal with people from other cultures— To create the simulation, the Army hires immigrants from places like Ukraine, Afghanistan, Somalia to play characters like villagers, mob bosses, and sheikhs.
8: For example, one of those scenarios is a family whose daughter was killed by a U.S. military vehicle. Not one of the team members' vehicles, but nonetheless are being accused of being involved with this hostility. With the father yelling and the wife and daughter crying over their daughter who was killed, The students are expected to gain information, gain understanding on the family's role in that village, any important information that might be a threat to the detachment, and then also ways to leverage the family's assistance in accomplishing U.S. objectives. Now these role players can adapt quickly. So for example, some students do not succeed the first time and find themselves not even welcome in the house. Other students succeed and are welcome in the house and are adaptive enough to gain the information needed, uh, soothe the family without making too many promises, and then walk away with the information they need. That would be considered a successful training environment.
0: After completing that, the students move on to language and culture training. Only one out of every eight students makes it through special forces training. Many of them drop out because it's too hard. Some are injured in training, and others are simply cut. Even the soldiers who make it to graduation still need to be selected to become a Green Beret. The idea is to make these soldiers equipped to handle any situation. Like the one Green Beret Captain Ronald Fry and nine of his men found themselves in. Back in 2003, they were assigned a mission in the middle of the Pesh Valley in Afghanistan, a place known as the Valley of Death. And if that doesn't sound daunting enough, Fry and his men knew next to nothing about where they were headed.
7: We were actually a scuba team that spoke all kinds of Asian languages. And the next thing you know, we're being dropped off in the mountains of Afghanistan to work with the Pashtun tribes. So it was we're out of our element from a cultural standpoint, even though that mission is transferable. Like we understood what we needed to do, but we really didn't have a lot of cultural or language skills for that area.
0: No one spoke Pashto.
7: No. And so we had to use interpreters.
0: And... Describe this area that you are assigned to. Why is it called the Valley of Death?
7: The base of the Himalayas It's the Mm -hmm. Hindu Kush Mountains. So you got this deep river valley with these really high rising craggy mountains all around it. So easy to hide out. Easy to hide. Satellites aren't going to see you. People aren't going to know you're there. And then at the same time, you've got these three different ethnic groups that are all kind of mistrusting each other. The Taliban couldn't control it. The Soviets couldn't control it. The Brits couldn't control it. And then we decided that we wanted to try.
0: And what was the response?
7: You know, what was great is the army had spent a month there and you had all these 18-year-old shaved young soldiers with helmets on that looked a lot like Russians to these people. We were wearing local clothes. We had beards. They could treat us like men because in their culture, if you don't have a beard, you're not a man. And we could communicate with them in a much better way than the conventional army before us could. And so those guys kind of set us up for success because we really look good to the local people. <laughs> In
0: comparison to In how comparison, bad the other guys look. That's
7: right. And so we started spending money on the local economy. We started buying Pepsis. We started buying food. We started employing local people to help us build up our camp. The influx of money and the fact that we had beards and we were respectful of their culture gave us a good three to four weeks of a honeymoon period where there was very little violence.
0: And then the violence came?
7: You know, every couple of weeks we'd get a rocket attack of five or six or ten rockets. And very rarely would they be effective, but it was a statement from the enemy to the people that, hey, the Americans might be here, but we're still here and we're not going away.
0: And at this point, what are you understanding as your mission? Because on the one hand, you are ingratiating yourself with the locals. And then on the other hand, you're also fighting off these Taliban or Al-Qaeda fighters.
7: The intent of us being there was to prevent Afghanistan from ever becoming a sanctuary for terrorists in the future. Like we're trying to disrupt the power base in that one little valley. And so we got to really be engaged with the local community. And, you know, we pumped money into the economy, hired local fighters. We had 130 local Afghans that their families and their villages were now benefiting from the fact that the Americans were there. So I was considered the red-bearded commander. I was the warlord or the king, the American king in that area because I had the most guns. But we weren't pitting tribe against tribe. We were basically just trying to create stability in the valley. And so now you have the opportunity where the local judge could do his job because somebody wasn't going to kill him when he judged against them because we lived right next door to him. So now you got the local government that was able to do their job. you got the local villages that if they have a grievance, they would come to me and I would adjudicate between multiple villages or or fights. It's almost like we brought in a third party to help them solve some of the problems that have been festering for generations. And they accepted it.
0: And how long were you there?
7: We were there for a year in total.
0: And after that, did you feel that you had met your mission, your goal? You felt you had settled the situation and you were on the way to creating a peaceful
7: area? We did. We did. The, the al-Qaeda nemesis, we made him irrelevant. He was unable to find weapons or people that were willing to attack us. But some of the bigger indicators were we had an estimated 20,000 refugees return from Pakistan during the Soviet occupation and the Civil War, they'd gone to Pakistan and they hadn't come back. And word got all the way to Pakistan that the valley was safe and these people came home. And there was a few days where there was like incredible celebration in the valley that all these families had been rejoined. And so there was the intangibles that we saw locally that showed us that not just that the Americans aren't being attacked, but these people weren't killing each other.
0: So you leave after a year and then what happens?
7: The great thing is while we were there, we actually saw success. We saw with those people you can win them over. But then shortly after, with a few mistakes and a different approach, that all reverted back to how it had been before and actually worse. And the Americans lost 120 soldiers there. It turned out to be a very a very bad place. Three-quarters of all bombs dropped in that conflict were dropped in that valley. But the thing to remember is it was the same people. It was the same people, and it was just how do they react to these foreigners being there. The difficulty in the mission is it, it is very emotional because... To build trust with these people, you have to sacrifice for them. You have to show them that you're committed to them. And you really have to give yourself to the mission. If we could win a war by just dropping bombs and drones, we would have already won because we've been doing that for 16 years now. But we have to be on the ground. We have to get these people to believe that our goals and their goals are the same. And until we get the majority of the people that feel that way and are willing to sacrifice as much as we are, then it's just going to be this this impasse that continues indefinitely.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Thanks for having me. That's Captain Ronald Fry, former Green Beret and author of the book Hammerhead Six, how Green Berets waged an unconventional war against the Taliban to win Afghanistan's deadly Pesh Valley.
9: Well, tonight, new information about a U.S. Navy SEAL that was killed in Somalia this week. Department of Defense officials have identified him as 38-year-old Kyle Milliken.
0: In May, a Navy SEAL killed in a raid on a terrorist compound was the first U.S. service member to die in combat in Somalia since Black Hawk Down in 1993. The recent rise of the terror group al-Shabaab has made the Horn of Africa an important front in the war on terror, and U.S. forces are very much a presence in Somalia again, although now it's not obvious. Emily Johnson reports from the Somali capital of Mogadishu.
10: Emerald waves crash on coral-encrusted shores, and the setting sun slants through the dust to give the cityscape of Mogadishu a beautiful and ghostly appearance. Decades of war have pummeled this once stunning capital, where, despite a new government and relative stability, periodic hit-and-run attacks by al-Shabaab keep residents on edge. But all that is outside the wire, as they say here in Mogadishu International Airport, or MIA, a fortified, sprawling base that is a world unto itself. The currency here is in U.S. dollars, and on Friday nights, a bar called the Civet Cat, a play on COT, a chewable stimulant leaf that's popular here, dissolves into a blurry karaoke sing-along. With its scorching, sandy backdrop and -and rough-and-tumble cast of characters, a mix of grizzled British military guys, UN personnel, and journalists, it feels a bit like the cantina scene in Star Wars. One thing conspicuously missing, however, Americans. That could be because most U.S. activities in the Horn of Africa operate from a base in Djibouti, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not here. Last month, the Vice News website published a U.S.-Africa Command memo that described involvement in as many as 98 operations a day in Africa, calling it America's, quote, shadow war. It's a pretty good description of their clandestine activities in the region, although an AFRICOM spokesperson clarified to me that that figure includes things like routine meetings and assessments. The U.S. mission in the region mainly consists of training and advising their partners in AMISOM, the African Union's mission in Somalia, and the Somali National Army, or SNA. She did, however, allow us how U.S. personnel are occasionally exposed to the same risks as these partners and, quote, defend themselves appropriately. This is what happened with Kyle Milliken, the Navy SEAL who was killed this spring. Medina Gate which separates the MIA base from the rest of Mogadishu, is not the imposing impenetrable structure you might imagine, but rather a low, entirely penetrable-looking one. Al-Shabaab militants must absolutely salivate over it, as they've tried hitting it again and again. At the moment, it's opening to admit Major Ali du Santour Guled of the Somali National Army. Major Santour is responsible for training SNA soldiers, and in this capacity, he's worked a great deal with U.S. Special Forces. He says it's largely due to U.S. assistance that SNA has dealt some major blows to al-Shabaab in the last few years. They used to live around the presidential palace, just firing bullets. But now they are all retreated from the city. They sometimes try to take guerrilla attacks, but they are really weak compared to the past years. U.S. special forces are now helping to train SNA soldiers at a new base called Baliyadoglai, located some 50 miles from Mogadishu, deep in Al-Shabaab country. But as grateful as he is for U.S. assistance, Major Santour says they need more.
2: We were expecting that when Trump came to power, that he will fight against terrorist activities very
10: powerful, and we are still waiting. He says Americans and Somalis are brothers and sisters, noting that the new president of Somalia, Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, elected earlier this year, is an American citizen. So he's hopeful that President Trump will give them what they need. Special forces are all well and good, he says, but what they really need is tanks and other heavy weaponry to put a speedy end to the conflict. For that to happen, the arms embargo that has been in place since 1992 would need to be lifted. President Mohammed has been pleading with the international community to do just that, warning that if it remains in place, the war will drag on for another 10 years. If the U.S. government removes the weapons embargo, we could fight against al-Shabaab alone. It might only take six months. The stakes for ending the conflict are high, and not just because of the ongoing attacks. The continued presence of al-Shabaab militants in remote areas of Somalia is complicating relief efforts amid a drought a drought that is causing the worst famine to hit the country since a quarter of a million people died in 2011. For America Abroad, this is Emily Johnson in Mogadishu, Somalia.
0: It's not just Somalia that needs conventional military forces and heavy weaponry. Mark Moyer of the Foreign Policy Initiative says the reason special ops alone can't win a war is that they're only one part of the puzzle.
2: Yes, and they need to be part of a larger strategy as well, because usually single tactical results are not enough to make major changes. Now, you know, if, you're, if you're trying to rescue hostages, it may have some kind of strategic effect or taking out a leader. But we've seen that when we go in and conduct these raids, we can get rid of a, a single individual. But most of our adversaries seem to be pretty good at replacing their losses. The bigger problem is developing broader strategies in order to uh, you know, reestablish governance in places like Yemen and Somalia, um, helping them build their own security forces so that we can you know, decrease the number of these operations over time.
0: Coming up, we'll look more into deployment strategy in a conversation with the man who oversaw the raid that killed Osama bin Laden.
5: Are we safer as a result of the death of bin Laden? Absolutely. Uh, have you seen a downward a uh, death spiral in terms of Al Qaeda, Maine? You bet.
0: You're listening to Warrior Diplomats, a look into U.S. special operations on America Abroad. For more on this topic and to see photos from both Somalia and Fort Bragg, Visit our website at PRI.org. From PRI, it's America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Last year marked a grim milestone for the military. It was the first time deaths among special operations forces outnumbered deaths in the rest of the military. That fact illustrates just how much we are relying on special operations forces now to wage war. About 8,000 U.S. special operations forces are currently deployed in more than 80 countries. During a Senate hearing in May, the commander of Special Operations Command, General Raymond Thomas, called the rate at which special operations forces are being deployed unsustainable. He warned that the abilities of the special operations should not be overestimated.
5: We're not a panacea. Uh, We are not the the ultimate solution for every problem, and and you you will not hear that coming from us.
0: This sentiment is echoed by William McRaven, who served as commander of U.S. Special Operations Command under President Obama and oversaw the raid on Osama bin Laden.
5: I do think it's unsustainable in the long run. These men and women have been fighting for 16 years, most of them in hard, hard combat. We will not be able to sustain that level of deployment uh, for too much longer.
0: When you say too much longer, what do you mean?
5: Yeah, I'm not sure I can put a timeline on it. I think when we started the fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, we thought, well, th- these fights won't go much more than a year or two years or three years or five years or 10 years. And so it's hard to say that there is a breaking point because at each point along the way, the commanders of U.S. Special Operations Command, the commanders of the various uh, elements recognize the problem and began to manage their force better.
0: You oversaw Operation Neptune Spear, and that's the raid that took down Osama bin Laden. And this has been described as one of the most successful missions ever by special operation forces. I'm wondering, though, now that you look back on it, with the Taliban now strong again in Afghanistan, ISIS and al-Qaeda strong in parts of Iraq and Syria, do you think that the killing of bin Laden did anything significant to decrease the threat of these groups?
5: Yeah, we weren't naive about the impact that capturing or killing bin Laden would have. But I will tell you what we found out after the raid as we pulled a, a lot of intelligence material off. At the time, you know, I'm not sure we didn't think that bin Laden was just a figurehead. And of course, what we found out was, uh, au contraire, uh, bin Laden was, in fact, planning more operations. So are we safer as a result of the death of bin Laden? Absolutely. Uh, have you seen a downward a uh, death spiral in terms of Al Qaeda, Maine? You bet. So the death of uh, bin Laden definitely had an impact on us. Now, the rise of ISIS uh, has clearly been a problem, but those forces that have been fighting the war for a long time, they understand how to go after this problem.
0: I want to ask about the differences in approach by the Trump administration and the Obama administration. You served under President Obama, and former Defense Secretaries Robert Gates and Leon Panetta have criticized President Obama for micromanaging the military. With President Trump, it seems to be just the opposite. He's putting a lot of faith in generals on the ground. Can you talk about the two different styles and how that affects special operations forces?
5: When you have a sensitive mission that is not necessarily in the theater of war, like Iraq or Afghanistan... I don't think there's anything wrong with the president and his national security staff understanding the risks involved in doing a strike in, say, for example, a Somalia or a Yemen or a North Africa someplace. But I can tell you that never once that I worked for President Obama did he tell me not to do a mission after we made it clear it needed to be done.
0: I I know that you haven't worked for President Trump, but from what you have seen, do you have faith that he will not be rash or make rash military decisions that could put forces in harm's way unnecessarily?
5: Well, I think as long as he continues to listen to Secretary Mattis, General H.R. McMaster, and the great folks that are part of his national security team, he will do very well.
0: Admiral William McRaven, he's former commander of all U.S. Special Operations forces under President Obama. He's now the chancellor of the University of Texas system, and his new book is titled Make Your Bed, Little Things Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Well, thanks. Great to be here. We are overusing and under-resourcing U.S. military special operations.
0: That's Christopher Harmer, senior analyst at the Institute for the Study of War.
6: What I mean by that is these are guys who have a never-say-die, never-say-quit attitude. They literally will operate up until the point of death without complaint. And because they're so effective at what they do, because the demands of the current security environment uh, lend themselves to a use of special operations, we're using them as the first response. A lot of guys are coming out of that just physically broken, and we just need to give them either more personnel to spread that burden or reduce the burden we're placing on them.
0: Special Forces soldiers spend their deployments constantly switching gears, pivoting between diplomatic work with ambassadors and NGOs, to training local forces, to fighting enemies in the field. But the most difficult adjustment is sometimes the one that comes at the end of a tour— Our producer, Shoshi Shmulevitz, met with Lieutenant Colonel Seth Wheeler, a Green Beret, who served multiple tours in Iraq. He described what it's like to come home.
8: When I first came home from a four-month deployment in 2004, uh, I was home the next day with my family. And it was interesting to look around and realize that uh, what we call very first-world problems, the hot water didn't work or the window on the back of the house wouldn't close properly as those were the challenges of the day versus what we just experienced for four months, which was survival, which was mission success, which was life and death. I think the greatest challenge coming back was knowing that we're going back to the same complex environment, knowing that the mission parameters were ultimately life and death, while explaining to our families that we were going back into harm's way. Once we were overseas, we could just focus on the mission, but trying to do those while also attending Ballet rehearsals and you know sports games for our, our, our children um, offered its own unique uh, challenges.
3: I'm trying to imagine exactly what it feels like to be at a ballet rehearsal and a week after coming back from, from Baghdad or something. Can you talk about the just the feeling of it a little bit more? Okay. I'm just gonna
9: take a minute. No, it's fine. Okay, so. I'm sorry. has
1: yeah, All right. Had moment. Yeah. You're right
3: now. Thank you. Okay. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started out?
8: I wish I'd known the length of time that the conflicts would have lasted. In many cases, our deployment tempo for forces overseas on our special forces detachments has been year after year. And in many cases, our families uh, have suffered long separation, which we understand is part of the job. Um, That would have, from an expectation management standpoint, been something I would have been interested in knowing in 2003 uh, and 2004 when I first arrived on my detachment
9: Had you known, would you have done anything differently?
8: No, I would have done nothing differently and and find myself still proud to serve with the quality and caliber of folks I serve with every day. You know, a little while ago, you asked me, you know, how it is to come back from a deployment and, you know, sit at a ballet or or a piano recital, um, you know, having just left the combat zone and I had a little trouble answering you. I think that uh, the surreal aspect of those are realizing that our, you know, friends and, and comrades who didn't come home, realizing the cost over time is one that's not often known.
0: These long and repeated deployments are a direct result of an ever-morphing war in the Middle East, says Christopher Harmer of the Institute for the Study of War.
6: The fundamental shift in the way we fight wars is also reflected in the legislative process. You look back at World War II, there was a clear start and a clear end to that conflict. There's no nation-state of al-Qaeda. There's no way for us to expect that al-Qaeda will accept unconditional
11: surrender. We are fighting an ideology. We have gotten to the point where... We are relying on a 60-word authorization for a lot of military operations around the globe pertaining to terrorism.
0: Daniel DiPietro is a fellow at Defense Priorities. That's a foreign policy think tank. He's referring to a bill authorizing the use of force that was passed in the days after 9-11. It was directed then at stopping the terrorists related to the attacks. But since then, it's given nearly 16 years of legal cover to dozens of troop deployments.
11: Congress, particularly members of the leadership, see this unconventional threat, this very morphing, quick threat, and they haven't been able to come to a conclusion about how to fight it. And the best way to fight it is first having a national debate about this issue.
0: Currently, there's a bipartisan bill introduced by Senators Tim Kaine and Jeff Flake that would do just that. The proposed legislation officially authorizes the current fight against ISIS, al-Qaeda, and the Taliban. But it also requires the president to seek congressional approval if he wants to expand the fight against terrorism in new countries.
11: So basically, this legislation is crafted in such a way that it would force members to take a vote one way or the other. And unfortunately, over the last decade and a half, we haven't had that conversation. We've had members that are scared of taking a very controversial war vote.
0: That may be starting to change. In late June this year, the House Appropriations Committee passed an amendment repealing the 2001 authorization, clearing a first major hurdle toward the adoption of the new law. As leaders in Congress, the White House and the Pentagon debate when and how to use special operations forces. At Fort Bragg, the commanders there are charged with making sure the next generation of elite warriors is ready for deployment. In the last few years, there's been a shift in who they should be. Beginning last year, all combat roles in the military were open to women. So how have things fared in special operations? Well, several women have completed ranger school, but only one has reportedly joined a ranger regiment. A few women tried and failed to complete Navy SEAL training, and there aren't any female Green Berets. But women do serve in other elite special operations, such as
11: group support battalions. I'm currently the third GSB commander in third special forces group.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Megan Brogdon is a military logistician, and she's the first woman to ever command an entire group support battalion for a special forces group.
11: We take care of fuel, ammo, food, you know, all of that stuff that operators or infantry soldiers need.
0: Brogdon has deployed to countries where being a woman can be problematic, countries like Iraq.
11: So I ran a lot of convoys back and forth from Aramadi to like Altakadam. I worked with local vendors. You know, everyone always asks, well, how was it? How did they treat you? I've never seen that side of where, you know, they treat their women. They've never treated us that way. I mean, uh, maybe if we didn't have this uniform on and we were just over there, it would be different story, but it's always been different.
0: Once Lieutenant Colonel Brogdon put her uniform on, she was viewed simply as a soldier and nobody messed with her. But despite stories of women like Brogdon who've had positive military experiences and risen in the ranks, the rate of women trying out for elite units remains tiny. But six years ago, there was an innovation with women and special forces. Gail Samak-Lamon wrote about it in her book, Ashley's War, where she embedded with a group of women in something called a cultural support team.
9: was well, a very benign name for a rather groundbreaking concept. And really, they are all-women teams that are going out both on ranger missions and also on special forces, village stability, you know, kind of hearts and minds missions. So they're both part of the discussion about how to find insurgents on those kinds of operations, the nighttime operations, and also part of the building relationships with communities that special forces often does. And what you see with these teams is that they are talking to women. They are finding out what's happening in neighborhoods and communities, whether it's in the heat of battle or whether it's in daytime when they are out uh, on a patrol for the longer term. Because the truth is, no matter where you are in the world, if you want to find out what's happening in a neighborhood, usually who do you ask? You ask right? the women. You ask the women, yeah. right? And that's Whether it's these... here
0: or there,
9: yeah. Absolutely, and that's universal. And the female soldiers will talk to the women of the house and see what's happening. And And I don't want to downplay the fact that that's war. Of course it is combat, but it is a moment where they can understand that there's nobody trying to harm their physical safety, that there are women who are there, who are part of the military, who are trying to understand who's in the house, what's been happening, and, and is this the person that, that they're looking for?
0: And are these women, are they more apt to talk with other women, female soldiers, than they are with
9: the male soldiers? For certain, because in very traditional parts of Afghanistan in particular, but certainly I think you could extend that to other countries in the Muslim world, women unrelated by blood or marriage cannot talk to men. Uh, So women can talk to other women. And also, just imagine what that's like to be part of, you know, have your home targeted in this kind of an operation, right, to at least have... A female soldier that you can interact with who's going to say, Listen, no one's coming in your quarters, you know, we're not uh who was not female. Here's why we're here, who's here's who we're looking for. And then there's also the special forces mission, right? Where there are women who are out in the community building relationships every single day and talking to women about what's happening on the ground, what's happening in their neighborhood and what they're seeing and, and what they need. Given the fact that special forces
0: are being stretched thin and being asked to Do more, go on longer deployments, multiple deployments. Do you think the military will ask more women to try to become members of the special forces, to recruit more women?
9: It's a talent issue at the end of the day. And when you talk to senior military leaders, they are looking for people who can meet the standard. But the standard is the standard, and it's hard for men to meet it. So I think it's difficult for women as it is for men, but the physical strength piece is always a question right For women. But you do see women who are lining up to go for that role and and to put themselves in the pipeline. Do you think that the standard is acceptable? Is it too high, the physical standard? For special operations, I mean, I would say this, that they have been studied extensively, and that there are women who can meet it and will meet it. And so I would argue for it to be one standard and that women have the opportunity to meet it. And I think as long as you have that and there's transparency about that and women can train to that and they see other young women going for that, back to the whole, if you can see it, you can be it idea, then I think you will see more women in the future. It will take time. Hmm.
0: Well, given the fact that a lot of the missions involve community building or soft power, negotiating with tribal leaders, for example, physical brawn is not necessarily the number one prized asset, right? I mean, it's negotiating skills, it's cultural sensitivity, it's problem solving. So in that case, do you really need to be able to, I don't know, run five miles at
9: night through a swamp? It's an excellent question, actually one the military has asked itself, and I think you see... The standards for the cultural support teams that are in Ashley's War were very high, right? I mean, they were the assessment and selection was called 100 Hours of Hell, and it was held at Camp McCall where Special Forces assessment and selection happens. But it wasn't the same as the year-long training for Special Forces. And actually, you see that the cultural support teams have been revived. But do they have to go through the same one-year assessment and selection? You know, the answer when it comes to some of the cultural support team questions is, no, this is a separate program that is about, can you keep? up on these kinds of operations. But can you also bring to the battlefield the skills that will help us in the middle of a combat operation or in the middle of a village stability operation? So I do think that the military is grappling with exactly this question and is looking at doing both right Mm -hmm. now. Gail Zamak-Lamon
0: is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the book Ashley's War, the Untold Story of a Team of Women Soldiers on the Special Ops Battlefield. Thank you. Great to join you. The debate over the role of special forces is really a debate over the identity of the U.S. military. What do we want our fighting men and women to do? What kinds of battles do they need to know how to fight? And are we willing to rethink what being a soldier means in an era of seemingly endless war? This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulovitz, with additional production help from Flan Williams. Special thanks to Major Douglas Ray, Captain Christopher Webb, Colonel Chris Stengel, Sergeant First Class Regina Machine, and Command Sergeant Major David Clark at Fort Bragg. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brandt and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you.